The light seems very bright tonight. Is it brighter than usual? It is. Okay, good. Maybe that means I have permission to turn it down a notch. If I can. Good evening to you all at the end of this beautiful, clear day, at least on the outside. And the last Wednesday evening in February. And it seems like the weather outside is going to change. And also that we might be feeling the beginnings of some ripples in the fabric of the retreat. The prospect for many of us of the world re-arising and even if we're right in the middle of retreat and continuing our retreat, it's inevitable that we will feel, be sensitive to some of these ripples. And then at times the world stops again. And actually, even if we're here and very quiet in our retreat, We still feel these ripples of the world. It's a real artificial distinction that the world is out there and we're here. The world still happens. Uh, One of the epithets of the Buddha is loka vidu, the knower of the worlds or one who knows the worlds. And they're talking about the different different planes of existence, but they're all, quote-unquote, the world. Uh, But he was also someone who knew how to go beyond the world. So the Dharma is often often described as lokutara, that which goes beyond the world or uh, opens up a peace that's beyond the world. So tonight's reflections are around some of what we mean when we say the world. What do we mean? And if we feel the disturbance of the world, what is it that's disturbing us? I'm going to read to you from a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, Anguttara 8.6, and this is Uh, the translation from Tanisaro Bhikkhu. It says, so this is the Buddha speaking, and he says, Monks, these eight worldly conditions spin after the world, and the world spins after these eight worldly conditions. 
which ate, gain and loss, status and disgrace, censure and praise, pleasure and pain. These are the eight worldly conditions that spin after the world, and the world spins after these eight worldly conditions. For an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person, there arise gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure, praise, pleasure and pain. And for a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones, there also arise gain, loss, status, disgrace, censure and praise, pleasure and pain. So what's the difference? What distinction, what distinguishing factor is there between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person? And then there's the usual exchange where the the monks say, um, you are our teacher, um, we'd like you to explain the meaning of this to us. So the Buddha says, okay, sick. Uh, (laughs) S-I-C, not S-I-C-K. And so the Blessed One said, gain arises for an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. They do not reflect. Gain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. They do not discern it as it has come to be. Loss arises. Status arises. Disgrace arises. Censure arises. Praise arises. Pleasure arises, pain arises, and they do not reflect all these things, including pain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change. They do not discern it as it has come to be. Their mind remains consumed with the gain. Their mind remains consumed with the loss, with the status, the disgrace, the censure, the praise, the pleasure. And the pain. Their mind remains consumed with it, and they welcome the arisen gain and rebel against the arisen loss. They welcome the arisen status and rebel against the arisen disgrace. They welcome the arisen praise and rebel against the arisen censure. They welcome the arisen pleasure and rebel against the arisen pain. As they are thus engaged in welcoming and rebelling, They are not released from birth, aging, or death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, or despairs. They are not released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So you may well recognize these eight things as what we frequently call the worldly winds. I realize it's quite a tongue twister to do the, the <laughs> some of those words, the praise and pleasure and pain. <laughs> uh, so sometimes they're called, we call them gain and loss, fame and disrepute, disrepute praise and blame, pleasure and pain. Uh, maybe 
we could think in modern terms, success and failure, more common thoughts in our vocabulary, and good and bad luck. And I was looking up the original of the Sutta in the Pali and noticed that the Pali Sutta actually doesn't talk, it doesn't, doesn't call them winds. So they are, they are the loka, the world, loka vipati. And vipati, V-I-P-A-T-T-I, means actually something like failures, misfortune, distress, or something that's going wrong. Uh, sometimes we, they're called vicissitudes also in English. But the, the idea of them as worldly winds feels very apt to me because they are basically what blow us around, what buffet us. So just let's reflect a little on each of these pairs and how they might be showing up for us right now. So gain and loss is this whole territory of getting or not getting or losing what we want. And it's maybe uh, an interesting opportunity to contemplate this as circumstances change. So we can notice you know, the mind's natural tendency to start forming strategies to preserve the conditions we like and get rid of the ones that we don't like or anticipate losing the ones we don't like. And you might have I, when I'm on retreat, there's always this question, I wonder who's going to be giving the talk tonight? And I have my secret favourites and my secret less favourites. So some of you are probably happy to see me here this evening and some of you are probably hoping for someone else and <laughs> suffering the disappointment of that. Uh, you might be relieved to be having a Dharma talk or you might actually be craving more silence. We might be looking forward to the sense that there may be a little bit more interaction, possibility for connection happening, or it might be the bit of retreat that we dread. And I imagine that people who will be going home in a few days' time may have moments of looking forward to going home and moments of wishing you were staying. And those who are here might have moments of being delighted that you're staying and moments of wishing that you too were going home. <laughs> so this is just noticing this. And uh, in any case, the time left in February is running out. Although we have an extra day tomorrow. <laughs> it's the 29th of February tomorrow and uh, I was remembering one of the things I learned in high school history is what happened when the we switched to the Gregorian calendar in 1582 I didn't remember that from school I looked it up today <laughs> but this perception of I need more time I want more time on retreat or I want more, more time to do the things I do, and a sense that we never have enough time. 
And in 1582, when the calendar changed, there were actually riots in Europe because people thought that 11 days had been stolen from their life. The, the calendar was moved forward 11 days in order to compensate for the way that things had got out of sync before the modern uh, leap year system was introduced. And people felt that they were losing 11 days of their life. So it's also maybe an interesting thing to contemplate as we have these experiences of anticipation and of gain and loss, how the perception of gain and loss is tied up with a perception of time and things, kind of dependent on creating this world of time. And there, you know, there are many day-to-day -day irritations that we experience. So I, in an evening of deep unmindfulness, a few, two or three months ago, I was leaving some friends after dinner and I managed to wrap the rear end of my car around a lamppost. And it had to have a, a, a bottom lift, a butt lift, <laughs> and had a new new rear attached to it. And then, and then I went to teach a retreat at Gaia House and I left the car parked out in the, in the car park. And when I came to leave the retreat, there was a new dent in the side of the door and, and uh, nobody had told me about that. So, so I was, my pride in my beautiful new car didn't last very long. So we can practice with these relatively minor irritations in life to learn about letting go. And this perhaps helps prepare us for the inevitable losses of life when we find that we lose perhaps a loved one or a relationship that's important to us. Or we lose our youth or our health. Eventually, all of us are going to have to let go of our bodies, of our minds, and even of life itself. This is the first noble truth. So there's an opportunity to just contemplate how identified are we as we these losses start to creep up on us. How identified are we with this body formation. And I really you know, offer a deep and sincere bow to all of those who are, all of those, and we all are to a degree, but some of us it's much more palpable and obvious, who are showing the way with how we have to let this body go. So the, the unwise mind or the deluded mind um, takes these ups and downs of gain and loss personally. This is what is called ayoniso manasikara, unwise reflection, unwise attention. So even these natural losses, like the loss of our youth or our health or the loss of our relationship, they can feed our sense of success and failure. 
And that brings us to the second of these, second of these pairs of worldly winds or conditions that spin the world of status and disgrace, sometimes called fame and disrepute. I can't say status, sorry. Status. <laughs> yeah. So success and failure is a big, you know, I think it's a big thing in modern life. And the many ways that society seems to judge us or that we judge ourselves through the eyes that we project onto society. But it was a thing also, too, at the time of the Buddha. Uh, things like birth. Uh, Tara was talking about the, the caste system that prevailed also at the time of the Buddha. Appearance. Wealth, accomplishments, maybe physical or athletic prowess, popularity. But all these different things that we measure ourselves and even one another by. And then in our, our world, there's also a kind of tyranny, at least in my experience, of educational achievement. And this idea of meritocracy, which in some ways is a beautiful thing that is meant to liberate us from all these kind of other artificial forms of ranking and at least aspire to each of us to give, the, to give each of us the opportunity to make the most of our life. But it also fails to appreciate the way that the odds are still stacked in many ways. And the idea that we all are where we are purely on merit is an illusion. And perhaps so it, it, it can trap some of us in the sense of never being good enough. And perhaps those who are born with good fortune, it places tremendous pressure on you to feel that you have to prove that you are worthy of the good fortune that you have. We also are maybe more conscious of the ways in which we are uh, unfortunate or the, the disadvantages of all sorts of different sorts of disadvantages that we might have had in life. And Sometimes I notice in myself the, the, the tendency to kind of want to make a moral superiority out of victimhood. You know, in the places where I feel disadvantaged, well, I can even get conceited about feeling less advantaged in certain ways. And I, I also want to acknowledge that in my own life I've been pretty fortunate, and I think in most ways I, I've been very fortunate. But nobody has a has dealt a perfect hand. So do we want to be evaluating the world or ourselves in terms of success and failure and status and disgrace? Are we alert to the kind of inclination sometimes to put others or a class of other people down in order to keep ourselves feeling okay. 
There was a there's a, a a book that I read that I really recommend by Bhikkhu Analio, who we've often quoted here, called Superiority Conceit in Buddhist traditions, and looking at the different ways that, as practitioners, we can put another class of practitioners down. And then there's you know of course social media. Yeah, and kind of this bizarre world that we live in that it's almost more important to get lots of attention than what the attention is for. But even even if, if the grounds for allocating praise and blame are ones that are maybe more discerning, we can still be misunderstood and misrepresented. So even the Buddha was not uh, not free from this experience of praise and blame. So this is just the blowing of these worldly winds. And we can feel them happening here, you know, that sense of what do they think of me? What do my teachers think of me? What do the teachers think of me? Am I a good enough yogi? What do you all think of me? Am I a good enough teacher? You know, this is the blowing of this praise and uh, this uh, fame and disrepute. And then maybe the the distinction between that and the uh, the next pair of praise and censure mean is is when actually. Uh, there's an actual instance of praise or criticism. So how how do we receive that? And maybe that's one of the reasons I I like this topic of the worldly winds. I find it so uh, rich and useful to contemplate in experience because I know that I'm somebody who is um, very sensitive to criticism. Uh, very sensitive to the the feeling of being blamed. And maybe some of the rest of you have this sense too, because there's so much conditioning that we have in early childhood and, again, through our education and our society that sort of um, leaves us feeling vulnerable and that our there are conditions placed on our value. So to really bring a lot of care to how we receive praise and criticism, and can we receive it? And how much does it destabilize us? And what do we take personally? So we might, receive praise and criticism for our appearance, hopefully not here, or for our behavior, or even for our views. That can maybe be one of the places where we even feel most vulnerability. And that tells us a lot about what, what do we identify with most strongly. And then pleasure and pain, the fourth pair, so 
what is our response to the arrows and the darts of feeling tone, Vedana? And do we, again, take that as saying something about us personally? If we are unhappy, are we kind of somehow think there's something wrong with us that we're unhappy? If we're physically uncomfortable, if our body is in pain, do we take that as a personal failure? When we're having a pleasant experience, do we take that personally? We think, oh, great, now I've you know, nailed my practice. And more generally, do we, do we let the, the whole quest for pleasure dictate our life? So I think clearly discerning these very specific um, pairs of um, winds that blow on us is really helpful. And I like the image of the tree with deep roots that is well-grounded and not easily blown over in these winds. And this is what mindfulness offers us. Especially the mindfulness that's really immersed in the body, it slows down our reactivity to what is perceived. It's almost like it lowers our center of gravity. And then we meet these conditions with our practice and so back to the Buddha he says now gain arises for a well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and they reflect gain has arisen for me it is inconstant stressful and subject to change they discern it as it actually is Loss arises, status arises, disgrace arises, censure arises, praise arises, pleasure arises, pain arises. They reflect, pain has arisen for me. It is inconstant, stressful and subject to change. They discern it as it actually is. Their mind does not remain consumed with the gain. Their mind does not remain consumed with the loss, with the status, the disgrace, the censure, the the praise, the pleasure. Their mind does not remain consumed with the pain. They do not welcome the arisen gain or rebel against the arisen loss. They do not welcome the arisen status or rebel against the arisen disgrace. They do not welcome the arisen praise or rebel against the arisen censure. They do not welcome the arisen pleasure or rebel against the arisen pain. As they thus abandon welcoming and rebelling, they are released from birth, aging and death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses and despairs. They are released, I tell you, from suffering and stress. This is the difference. This is the distinction. This is the distinguishing factor. 
between the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones and the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person. So it's a great blessing to be able to take a steady look at the comparing mind rather than be lost in it. The comparing mind is what sees the features and the contours of the world in terms of these eight conditions. This is that unwise attention or ignorance that looks for peace and fulfillment in the wrong places. So it does feel as if these worldly winds are blowing on us. And they do in the sense that these things will always happen. But another way to look at it might be to see in what way it's us doing the blowing. So there's this famous teaching of Ajahn Chah about uh, monks being disturbed by the noise outside the monastery. And he said, is it the sound that comes in to disturb you or you who go out to disturb the sound? So what are we picking up when we feel ourselves blown by these worldly winds? They blow or what they land on is our sense of self. The fetter of conceit. This conceit in the Buddhist, in the Dharma sense of the sense of measuring ourselves against others as better or the same or worse. Of referencing everything back to an idea of me. And then what the, these winds do, what these uh, misfortunes do, is they catch us by our rough edges and our corners. And it hurts. But let's not despair about it, because um, as we've probably said, and as you may know, this conceit, this particular type of conceit, not the fundamental Sakaya Ditti, which is the, the belief in an everlasting soul or self. But this, this form of conceit is the very last thing that disappears uh, between non-return and arahantship, i.e. It's, it's something that is with us right until final awakening. And so I love the way that Joseph Goldstein frames it. He says, when he notices that sense of self, the sense of conceit arising, he can recognize, oh, I'm practicing to be an arahant. Uh, we are doing arahant practice. So if we don't see them clearly for what they are, then the more the winds blow, the bigger and the more painful and the more vulnerable the sense of self becomes the sense of me in a difficult world being reinforced. But if, they, if we do see them, then 
they actually reveal to us where there's an opportunity for more freedom, where there's some clinging that could possibly be released, where we might allow some of the sense of self to soften, where we might just feel some compassion for the confused, this poor confused mind where we might let go of some kind of unhelpful mental proliferation and just feel the ground under our feet. Reflecting that the tree is not the same as the winds that are blowing through it. When we, when we do feel these winds blowing, we can notice if we feel horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, as is said in the, the beautiful sutta, the Buddha's advice to Rahula, where he, he suggests to him, let your meditation be like the earth. Rahula, meditate like the earth. For when you meditate like the earth, pleasant and unpleasant contacts will not occupy your mind. Suppose they were to toss both clean and unclean things on the earth, like feces, urine, spit, pus, and blood. The earth isn't horrified, repelled, and disgusted because of this. In the same way, meditate like the earth. For when you meditate like the earth, pleasant and unpleasant contacts will not occupy your mind. Meditate like water, like fire like wind and like space, which is not established anywhere. So but to, be, to be horrified, humiliated or disgusted or even just re- attracted and repelled to, or as Tanisro Bhikkhu puts it, re- re- um, welcoming and rebelling, These are signs that we're taking things personally. We're giving weight to the obsessions of the mind and our center of gravity, you could say, has gone to the wrong place, gone to an unhelpful place. So again, these worldly winds could be an invitation to see about developing some of the equanimity of these great elements So what is the toolkit of the comparing mind? I can't remember now where I found it in the suttas, but there is a place where greed, hatred, and delusion are referred to as makers of measurement. So greed, hatred, and delusion, or our ignorance and lack of mindfulness, this is the toolkit of the, of the comparing mind. So you could ask yourself, what doesn't make measurements? What doesn't measure? And we have these four immeasurable, non-measuring qualities of loving kindness, compassion, mudita, and equanimity. And when there is equanimity, 
wisdom can emerge. So you could say also that it's ignorance that compares and wisdom discerns. So how might wisdom evaluate the world? What kind of a world is wisdom sensitive to? Maybe it is that it recognizes that all these things are inherently unstable, ever-changing. It recognizes the conditioned nature of experience and its inherent, therefore, unsatisfactoriness and its impersonality or not-self, anatta. And how might, it, how might it discern the shapes and the contours of our human experience and appreciate, nonetheless, the beauty of the world and, at the same time, open us up to that which is beyond the world, Lokutara. And Tara touched on this last night when she was speaking about what makes a true Brahmin. So wisdom, rather than seeing things in terms of these worldly conditions, it sees the world in terms of skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome states. It uses wise attention, wise reflection. So I was doing a little experiment to myself, thinking, okay, so what could be the benchmarks then for assessment? And I was imagining where a world where instead of the eight, those eight conditions, we would take something like the ten paramis as the benchmarks of value but you could substitute any wholesome qualities that speak to you. But how about looking at experience and what's happening in terms of the presence and absence of generosity, of ethics, of renunciation, of wisdom, of energy, or wise effort, of patience, of truthfulness, of determination or resolve, aditana, of metta, loving kindness, and its um, partners of compassion and appreciative joy, and of equanimity. What if, what if these made the news? Wouldn't that be great if the news were all about these and celebrating them with the concerns of all our media, not looking just at what celebrity was wearing what or where they'd been spotted or what transgressions they had done. Yeah. 
So this wisdom really discerns and celebrates what's skillful and recognizes what's unskillful, but also without clinging to a fixed view of a person or a fixed view of a self. Kim, Kim taught me something very good yesterday or the day before. She quoted something from the uh, Vajrayana tradition. She said, a bodhisattva doesn't criticize other bodhisattvas. So when we find each other ruffled by worldly winds, maybe we can bow to the bodhisattva in each other. And when the worldly winds blow on us, maybe we can see them with some wisdom. One of my favorite uh, suttas and chants that we used to do regularly in the monastery, we haven't done it on this retreat, but sometimes we chant it on retreats, is the discourse on the highest blessings. And the very the penultimate verse, the, the kind of blessings start with the simplest thing of learning to associate with wise people and not associate with foolish ones, but it sort of goes through an ever-ascending level of blessings. And it says uh, the, the penultimate one is to see for oneself the noble truths and realize Nibbana. This is the highest blessing. And the very last verse says, although in touch with worldly things, we could think of these worldly energies, unshaken the mind remains. So the winds blow, but the tree is unshaken. And beyond all sorrow, spotless, secure, these are the highest blessings. So that sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, it ends with a verse. So we can end also with this verse. Gain and loss, status and disgrace, censure and praise, pleasure and pain, these conditions among human beings are in constant, impermanent, and subject to change. Knowing this, the mindful, the intelligent person ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones Bring no resistance. Their welcoming and rebelling are scattered, gone to their end, do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state, they discern rightly, have gone beyond becoming to the further shore. Gain and loss, status disgrace, censure and praise, pleasure and pain. 
These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the mindful, intelligent person ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones bring no resistance. Their welcoming and rebelling are scattered, gone to their end, do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state they discern rightly, have gone beyond becoming to the further shore. Let's just sit quietly together. Thank you for your wise attention and your practice. And the evening is clear and not yet too, too cold. So please enjoy however you're going to continue your practice. And those who would like to chant, we can meet again at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.